I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly, and this is the Wind Power Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, including how that policy could transform the fortunes of domestic turbine suppliers and expand the country's wind manufacturing base, and also whether a political consensus still exists towards wind power ahead of the US presidential elections next year. We'll also talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act compares with European policy proposals and whether Europe risks being left behind in the race to deploy offshore wind. Joining me to discuss these issues, we have two guests to lend us the benefit of their insights. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show John Begala, who is Vice President of Federal and State Policy at the US Business Network for Offshore Wind. Keen listeners of the Wind Power podcast will remember that John joined us last year on the podcast, along with one of his colleagues from the network. Welcome back, John. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Ian. I'm also joined by Shashi Bala. Shashi is an analyst. He is director and head of research in renewable energy at the Brinkman Group, and he is also a regular contributor to Wind Power Monthly's opinion, news, and analysis pages. Welcome to the show, Shashi. Thank you very much, uh, Ian, for having me here. It's great to have you both here, gentlemen. The Inflation Reduction Act legislation has been described by Vicar Bate, the onshore chief of GE Vanova, as a game-changing piece of policy. And he describes President Biden's administration's position as no longer talking about it, let's start building it. What do you think of this assessment? John, do you want to kick us off on this? I would love to. I listened to that podcast. I thought it was a really interesting interview. And I have to say he is exactly right on both counts. This is the biggest climate investment we've ever seen in American history, generating an estimated $370 billion in incentives for the renewable energy market. We've also seen this administration really working hard to make sure they issue some key guidance. That way, the market can begin to plan accordingly. It's very hard to shift focus from the politics around policy to the actual execution and implementation of that policy. Uh, But we're beginning to see that shift happen in real time right now. Shashi, a game changer? What do you think? This has been by far the biggest policy driver in the history of wind. And that would trigger at least $350 billion worth of investments into wind projects in the United States uh, for both onshore and offshore uh, in the next 10-year time frame. And that's excluding the investments that we're going to see into the supply chain manufacturing. If we talk about offshore, the supply chain is non-existent today. That will warrant everything building from scratch, dedicated offshore manufacturing facilities. And there is also incentives that would promote companies to invest in to expand onshore manufacturing facilities as well. This is is by far one of the best policy moves and stable policy moves that we have seen in the industry to date. John, what roadblocks for the wind industry still exist in the Inflation Reduction Act as things currently stand? I would rather say that the industry is waiting on further clarification for some of the uh, specifics around these bonus credits. Uh, You know, one of the really interesting things about the IRA is that it includes multiple layers of stackable tax credits with added bonuses for, you know, fulfilling certain domestic content, labor provisions, investing in energy communities and other formerly disadvantaged communities. And so there are still some open questions as to how exactly those provisions are going to be implemented. 
they need to kind of explain it better rather than there is an inherent problem that you can see, basically. Look, if I'm being totally candid here, I do see one challenge in the legislation, and that is this 10% vessel tax credit for offshore wind vessels. The concept behind it is to incentivize further domestic shipbuilding for offshore wind vessels. However, the way it's constructed requires that the vessel uh, be constructed and then sold to a third party. Your listeners probably know that the way that that typically works would be for the vessel owner operator to provide the upfront capital contract with a shipyard to to perform the construction and then deliver the the vessel. So we're going to have to figure that out. Uh, We're still waiting on treasury guidance as far as how exactly that's going to be interpreted. Shashi, can you see any challenges in this legislation as it currently stands? I wouldn't call it as stumbling blocks, but more on the clarity part of it. If I were to bifurcate the industry into downstream and upstream, the PDC legislation itself is benefiting the downstream community, the developers and the the operators of the wind assets. And when it comes to the upstream community, the profitability of these companies have dwindled over the years. And now they need to put in additional capex to build new manufacturing facilities in the US, which is again, and relatively high cost. However, there is also some structural capacity available in markets like Mexico, which is relatively a low-cost manufacturing hub to support the U.S. demand. The recent uh, clarification that we have received essentially talks about all the facilities that are domiciled within the U.S. geography, but they haven't specified anything about the capacity either in Canada or Mexico. You know, We had the NAFTA agreement where these regions were included, but the current regime excludes those markets. So most of the suppliers are slightly concerned about if they have to make new investments into the U.S. market, because in the last three, four years, many companies have been, uh, you know, mothballing the facilities or shutting down the facilities. I would say that is probably one of the biggest elements that industry is awaiting for in terms of clarification. John, the business network for Offshore Winds membership is quite wide and obviously includes turbine manufacturers and developers as well, and in some in the supply chain too. I'm interested now to take a bit of a temperature test from you. What are the network's members feeding back to you about the legislation as it stands? There's a lot of positive feedback. I think the thing that is most consistent across the board uh, that folks appreciate is the IRA has now created a long-term stable policy uh, framework. And that long-term stability is exactly the sort of thing that a you know, smaller tier two mom and pop type of family business can actually now make a long-term business decision. Didn't even really think that there would be mom and pop level uh, suppliers in the in the wind industry, but you know I stand corrected. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Another temperature test here, John. What differences of opinion are there between turbine firms, developers, and those in the supply chain as to the merits or challenges uh, of the IRA? It sounds like there's broad positivity there, but within that, are there any members who are sort of voicing any concerns, or some who are happier than others? It's really more that different members of the supply chain developers, they're looking at different parts of the IRA for their specific clarifications. And so it's not so much that they have difference of opinion. There's just different pieces of the legislation that impact them differently. And they're all trying to understand how it's going to affect their business. Shashi, what's your take on whether U.S. manufacturing can actually cope with the demands of 40% local content requirements for onshore wind components to qualify for those tax credits? 
if you look at the way the local content policy is is ramping up, it breaks down at a component and subcomponent level as well. And so all those provide better clarity for investment decisions for the supply chain fraternity. I'm confident that the suppliers in total can meet and cope up with the 40% uh, local content and even up to 55%. However, there are two more additional layers. Number one is it's always a function of what is the demand. Because if the demand is what we project today, then the supply chain fraternity can prepare for that demand. But if the demand is significantly higher, and specifically in the U.S., there are four manufacturers that are active, GE, Vestas, Siemens, and Nordex. These companies have the capacity, and they know the capacity that they're going to build going forward. That's exactly what is going to determine if the companies are going to meet that local content threshold or not. That's one dimension. The other one is also, you know, we have seen how Chinese OEMs have been active in the international markets. And if and when they would want to target, because for all the top four Western turbine OEMs, U.S. is by far the single biggest market in terms of demand. And consequently, it will be the single biggest market global excluding China for the component suppliers as well. If the Chinese OEMs were trying to target that market, then would they come up with new investments into the supply chain and would they tap into that market or not? Demand is the X factor here, basically. And uh, obviously, more demand is great and great for those turbine manufacturers, but it could actually have a knock-on effect of creating a bit of a problem in terms of scrambling to actually meet that demand. Absolutely. John, back on offshore, where there are 20% local content requirements to qualify for projects starting before 2027, is there another potential supply chain bottleneck waiting to happen here? I want to make two points. Uh, the first being I'm not a tax lawyer. I just play one on podcasts. Uh, but the, the second one being that definitions really matter. The production and investment tax credits, PTC and ITC, as they're commonly referred to, they are domestic content thresholds. They're not local content requirements. But the 20% threshold phases in at the beginning of the tax credit for that extra 10% bonus through the end of 2024 ramping up on an annual basis till uh, the end of 2027, going into 2028 when it does hit 55%. I think that there may be some supply chain bottlenecks. There's a real concern that kind of near-term projects aren't going to be able to meet the added bonuses and that the full value of this credit is not going to be realized by offshore wind developers in the near term. Uh, I think looking ahead to 2026, 27, 28, 29, You've got such long-term stability in the market, you're going to see the investments on the supply chain side, which will then in turn allow projects to fairly easily hit these thresholds to be able to really realize the full value of the credit. Good problems to have in the sense that in order to meet this, then US manufacturing is going to really have to step up. But that means jobs, right? That means a lot of more people working and often you know, in depressed energy communities. So it's bringing those jobs back, right? That's exactly right. And I think New Bedford is a perfect example in Massachusetts. This is a former whaling community, been on hard times economically, and offshore wind is coming in, and, and we've really begun to revitalize that town. It's a story of hope. 
that story is going to be translated across the East Coast, but also well into the, the heartland of America. I mean, there, there are steel manufacturing facilities in Brandenburg, Kentucky, in the middle of, of central U.S. Uh, Mingo Junction recently received a $170 million investment for a slab casting facility that will eventually be rolled into the heavy offshore wind plates. So it's really exciting. And actually, that's going to lead to some more political stability for the industry. A lot of communities right across the U.S. are going to benefit from this. Shashi, later in the decade, the Inflation Reduction Act's local content requirements rise, as you said previously, to 55% for both on and offshore wind. And what happens if the wind industry and the manufacturing base is not ready by then? For onshore in general, there is already uh, enough capacity, whether it is for the nasals, blades, towers. So there is capacity available that could meet that threshold. And uh, when it comes to offshore, if you have to meet that, you know, we are 2027 is around the corner in three, four years time frame. And most of these facilities, we're talking about 250 plus million dollar in terms of investment to set up one single facility. Most of these uh, companies' profitability is dwindled. So they're very cautious in earmarking for their investments without having that good visibility on the projects that they're going to supply these components to. Unlike onshore, ticket sizes are significantly higher. Even for some of the largest companies, that is a significant size when it comes to investing into those facilities. The low-hanging fruits here will be nasal assembly, blades, towers, and inevitably foundations and cables would be the, some of the components. And all of this takes time to build the facilities and to ramp up the components and the productions and the operations, then supply to the commercial scale offshore projects. And we have seen here in Europe, when the companies are setting up new factories, they have faced some unforeseen challenges. So that is a downside risk for the industry when it comes to offshore because it's a steep demand. Today, from seven turbines installed in the US waters, we're gonna see 30,000 megawatts installed before 2030 or probably more. So there is that element of risk if the investment decisions are not taken actually today, they're materializing in the next 18 to 24 months so that they could start producing and fulfill the project demand. Now, if they are not fulfilling the demand, the demand will move, which is something that nobody would like to, because then there is billions of dollars at stake. And if you take offshore alone, to meet that 30 uh, gigawatts, you would at least need about 120 to 140 billion dollar investments into the projects. But historically, this industry, supply chain has always been resilient. So the point that I'm trying to make is that supply chain will try to deliver it, but the biggest bottleneck will be the policy stability. John, what are the risks as you see them? It's going to be a challenge, but ultimately, a lot of this falls back on the states. These states are reliant on offshore wind in order to hit their 100% clean electricity standards. So I think that we're going to see the states really working in cooperation with the supply chain to make sure that we can not only you know meet the 55% domestic content bonus threshold, but also we can get all of the turbines in the water that we need to hit 30 gigawatts and beyond. But we've tracked across all the different states that have offshore wind targets, uh, now a collective 84 gigawatt target for 2045. 
we do see that increasing. There are numerous states that are considering an increase. This is all necessary to meet those 100% clean electricity standards. The turbine arms race that we're seeing right now is a bit more of a threat than increased demand. I think increased demand itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think if it were increased demand for constantly larger turbines, constantly new technology that they have to keep in reinvesting in R&D and not get enough timeline to recoup that investment on R&D, I think that is a bit more of a risk. I think you're absolutely right. You're certainly seeing GE saying to us, look, let's not mess around with a thousand different variations of our turbines. Let's make a really good turbine and deploy that across the world. And you're hearing similar noises from Vestas. Now that we're talking about the OEMs, let's talk about their kind of their profits and their investments. And GE Venova made it clear in its recent interview with us that the Inflation Reduction Act could be its way back towards profitability. And obviously, all the OEMs have suffered over the last few years. What about the other major turbine firms, Shashi, including Siemens Gamesa and Vestas? How do you expect these turbine firms to capitalize on the Inflation Reduction Act policy? U.S. is by far the biggest market for all the top four Western turbine firms, contributing to between 40 and 70% of the annual business for these companies. Firms would do everything in their uh, capabilities to address that demand. And inevitably, G benefited significantly higher compared to the other players because the G already has established structural capacity for various components compared to anybody else. In the last few years, because of the climb down and uncertainty in the PDC extension, Vestas Siemens had to scale down their facilities and Siemens had to mothball the facilities and hibernate them. So they were planning to restart the nasal and the blade manufacturing facilities in the U.S. Nordex is the only company that has in the past couple of years have increased the market share and you know they had between 5 and 10% uh, towards the end of 2021 and they're the one without any uh, manufacturing capacity in the US market as of today and they have the ability to use the concrete towers to comply with the local content and there is also the contemplating that they would uh, reopen the West Branch Iowa facility for the nasals every single turbine OEM, they are clearly looking into those policies because they know that this will be the single biggest market in the next 10 years. And I believe that the demand that we're seeing today would be significantly higher if we talk five years from now. I would say they're trying to find the best possible ways to meet that local content and yet gain the competitive commercial traction. GE obviously has a home field advantage here. How are Siemens Gamesa and uh, Vestas and Nordex, how are they going to kind of capitalize on this? G has historically positioned in the high net capacity factor segment, which means that longer rotor and the smaller generators. And that's also primarily a function of the PDC credits, which are paid for the first 10 years of operations, which means that the developers would need a high energy yield machines. If you look at the Vestas, Siemens, Nordex, they have slightly moved on to a larger rated uh, turbine technologies as opposed to the high net capacity factor turbines that GE is playing in the last year. 
Siemens has also come up with a you know SG 4.4164, and Vestas already has a uh, 163.4.5, and I would. Uh, assume that Nordex would also soon come up with a turbine which is closer to this kind of configuration. So these companies are trying to claw back market share from GE in that high net capacity factor segment. Uh, the three European OEMs have been successful in the larger rated uh, segment, but they're also trying to compete with GE in that segment. So I would say their future success essentially depends upon their ability to localize the supply chain and have a comparative turbine technology that would address the diverse needs of the of the developer. John, what's your t- take on how the OEMs can compete with GE on, on home turf? Shashi hit it right on the head. He made a really good point about being able to identify and create those localized supply chains. But, you know, we've already seen Siemens Gamesa invest in a major blade facility down in Portsmouth, Virginia. I'm seeing the movement happening already. I don't expect that the, the other turbine OEMs are, are going to miss this opportunity. Do you expect to see turbine firms making investments in manufacturing facilities and jobs uh, in the U.S., which they'd not previously planned? We're absolutely expecting that. So there's going to be a a lot more jobs to be had and a lot more investment coming into into the country over the coming decade, basically. I certainly hope so, and and I expect it. How are developers going to view the Inflation Reduction Act? I'm interested to know perhaps what the networks members are saying here. Vicar Bates says the value proposition for wind developers in the US is now very clear in the context of tax credits. The fiscal policy laid out by the IRA is very well done and it satisfies a lot of needs. There, there are still some federal policy level actions that, that need to be clarified you know, when it comes to vessels, when it comes to a more regularized permitting schedule. There's some real challenges that we're going to have in the U.S., but those are highly surmountable. Shashi, do you have a take on how developers are going to view the, uh, the IRA and the value proposition for them now in the U.S.? The kind of flexibility of your option, a stackable option, that kind of opens up new avenues for the developers when it comes to the revenue generation mechanisms and also the taxes that they are paying. So anybody who is going to benefit by far the biggest in terms of these policies is certainly the developer community. Just now talk a little bit about the political consensus as it exists in the U.S. John, when you were last on the show with your colleague, Sam Salustro. And Sam, he said last summer, I think that we're going to continue seeing growing bipartisan support for the wind industry, mainly because of the pure economic development potential that it offers a lot of these local communities. Do you think that political consensus still exists He was exactly right. We did see a lot of bipartisan support for the Inflation Reduction Act. When it comes to understanding the differences between political posturing on the Hill and real party tendency towards specific policy priorities, I think the best way to kind of bifurcate those two things is to look at what's happening in states, and particularly in states where you have strong Republican control of of state legislatures. And we've seen Lots of supportive uh, actions taken for the offshore wind industry in Louisiana. They've passed legislation and are advancing a plan to conduct leasing in, in state waters in Louisiana. We also saw South Carolina pass an offshore wind supply chain study bill. So we're actually not seeing an entirely oppositional uh, attitude at the state level where real action can be done. Quite frankly, in Congress, it, it is a bit of a slim majority. So I would take those, that posturing uh, with a bit of a grain of salt. That's interesting that the state and federal pictures are so very different 
you know, if you're looking at this from afar, sometimes you only really see that top layer of the kind of federal opposition and the fighting between you know, Democrats and Republicans. It's encouraging uh, to hear you say that at a state level, the picture is actually very different. Shashi, in the context of political consensus, do you think the Inflation Reduction Act was a necessary compromise? I think it's certainly a good compromise in that sense, because if you think about it, you know, what is driving the economy? And of course, you know, wind industry globally is still about, you know, $150 billion industry. If you think about the way the economy is going to be driven in, in the US, especially a $25 trillion economy, largely driven by the services sector. So the contribution of clean energy and green jobs is certainly on everybody's agenda. So that is certainly has changed the equation because we're talking about the energy security and the energy independence. So if you have to decarbonize the energy mix, then you need to make drastic changes and you need to take quantum leap in terms of policies. And this is certainly is one of the biggest steps uh, in that direction. I would say if if and when there is still an opposition, there is only a way for thin chance of uh, having retrospective changes. John, you are a political animal like me. I wonder whether <laughs> you think there's any danger that the Inflation Reduction Act could be undone by a new administration. Or do you think the course for renewables deployment in the US is more or less set in stone now? You know, Ian, this is a really good question. I spent some time pondering this and I kind of gamed it out. And rule number one is nothing is ever set in stone in Washington. Things can change. But if you start to look at the, the political atmosphere in the United States, you know, 2021, we had a redistricting process where new districts are drawn. And that process slightly favored more Republican House districts. It's also true that uh, the president's party typically performs poorly in the midterm election. And now, despite these twin headwinds, the Democrats managed to retain control of the Senate. Uh, and in the House, their majority only slipped to a margin of five districts across 435 elections. But hypothetically, let's say in 2024, Republicans experience a major surge, retain the House and take back the Senate and the White House. But in this scenario, the Republicans would then have to decide uh, to you know, exude all their political capital on unwinding this law that took 18 months to negotiate in the first place. All the while, these tax credits are going to be going out, jobs are going to be created, investments are going to be happening. Now, is it possible that an unfavorable White House could do some things that would throw roadblocks in the way that would kind of trip up the industry, slow things down? That, that's absolutely possible. But their ability to fully roll back all of these tax incentives and in, in this stable policy framework would be extremely constrained, and it would require them focusing all of their attention on, on this and, and nothing else. And one example of a state where we have seen some anti-renewable policies being pursued uh, is in Texas. And in Texas, there were a lot of anti-renewable policies pursued, but ultimately the kind of cultural issues were what won the day. There was an offshore wind bill that was uh, proposed to effectively ban offshore wind in the state, ban the interconnection of, of offshore wind, really. And uh, that, that died without a, a committee hearing or a vote. And, and so I'm encouraged by that. It sounds to me like the wind industry hasn't got too much cause to be concerned or wary about the outcome of next year's presidential elections. Is that fair to say? Well, I think we all need to follow what happens in the election. The U.S. presidential election impacts every part of American life, and the ripples of it are felt throughout the globe. So it is absolutely going to impact us. 
whether specifically it would roll back these tax credits, I think that's challenging, but there will absolutely be impacts from the presidential election in 2024. But a complete unwinding, it sounds like kind of political suicide or certainly such a use of that political capital that there'd be no headspace left for anything else. Yes, I think that's that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Okay. For the final section of this podcast, I'd just like to compare Europe and the US in terms of the policy picture. So Shashi, the Inflation Reduction Act legislation is in place in the US, but Europe is still trying to come to agreement on a set of proposals such as the Net Zero Industry Act, Energy Market Reforms, and the Critical Raw Materials Act. How do you think, Shashi, these policy backdrops in Europe and the US compare in terms of their benefits to the wind industry? I think Europe has made a great move in trying to build that kind of policy stability for the European markets and not least uh, what has happened in, in the beginning of 2022. It's a good move in the right direction, but the uh, the magnitude and the actionable impact on that will be lower because US, it is you know a one market, a one economy. Europe as a whole, it's pretty much comparable to US with a 25 trillion economy spread across uh, 40 different countries. But however, in the US, it is implemented and there is less of state level differences when it comes to uh, interpretation of the policy. While in Europe, because the demand is in different markets uh, when it comes to offshore, and when it comes to supply, if you were to have you know, a manufacturing incentive in the US, here in Europe, there are no direct incentives, even if there were incentives in place, where would that capacity be allocated? Because the offshore inevitably would go to the demand centers. So all the markets with offshore demand will have an offshore supply chain. But when it comes to onshore, the high cost demand centers, you know, Western and Northern Europe, I would doubt if any of the OEMs or suppliers would open or put in new investments in those high cost markets. It has to go into the best cost markets in Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, which are not high demand centers. So the demand is originating somewhere while the benefit of the job creation is going somewhere else. So I think given these nuances and complexities, it is slightly difficult for Europe to implement the same uh, effect as what we see in in the US market. So another big picture question for you, Shashi. Is there a risk for Europe that the US could be seen as a more attractive market for big investment now and that it could actually be left behind for wind deployments than in the US? You know, I hate to acknowledge this, but uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, US will certainly in the next decade will have uh, much higher significant investments, whether it is into projects or whether it is into uh, supply chain. And in the European markets, Inevitably, there would be investments in the supply chain because there is the demand is going to grow by four or five folds in the next 10 years. But when it comes to onshore, I would feel that Europe is slightly left behind. And part of that is, of course, having a stable policy. And it's largely to do with the permitting. And I think that is certainly the biggest showstopper in the European markets. 
John, I'm going to give you the last word here and just ask you to kind of compare and contrast Europe and the US in terms of the policy backdrop. And and just to add, if you were in fact on the European side rather than as you are on the US, what would you have Europe do in order to catch up with the US? I really enjoyed uh, Sven Uttermorland's comparison between the two pieces of legislation that, that he did on your podcast. If your listeners haven't uh, checked out that episode already, I re- really recommend it. It does a great job of breaking down what's in this Net Zero Act. Essentially, what he said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but is that the IRA is simpler uh, and the Net Zero Act is a little more targeted. There, there are benefits and drawbacks to that approach, but I think that those different approaches really reflect the comparative maturity of the U.S. market versus the European market. So what should Europe do? I mean, that there is a beauty in simplicity, and perhaps that is needed. It may just be that the European market is advanced and complex enough that kind of simple, broad-based tax credit approach that the IRA takes uh, it would not be as beneficial as it is in the United States. Fair enough. Thank you very much indeed, gentlemen, for answering all of my questions. I really appreciate it. I just want to say thank you very much to Shashi Bala for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, John Vagala, as well. Ian, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins delivered straight to your inbox.